with everything so far. It's always a it's always a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to a great meeting. I'm going to read a passage this morning from the ninth chapter of Hebrews, beginning with verse 24 of this chapter. And in this place, we hear the divine writer saying, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. I want to talk on a theme this morning that I think uh, all of us should be interested in, but before we speak, certainly we do feel disposed to pray. I know that uh, you have been recipients of God's good gift this week by virtue of the fact that you're able to be here today, even as I have, and we're thankful for God's blessings and wish to express our thanks to Him and call upon His all-prevailing name. So at this time... Let us humble ourselves in prayer. Well, this morning we're going to have a little homemade lesson. A young preacher one time was complaining about not being able to find uh, sermon material. And one of the older brethren is reported to have told him, Boy, get your Bible. There's hundreds of them in the Bible. And of course that's true. And I'd like to suggest another source of ideas, and that is to get your concordance and to look at uh, that. I became intrigued recently with the conjunction of contrast that we have on the board here, but now. A.T. Robertson states that this term constitutes a strong contrast as opposed to at that time. So here we have a contrast at that time, but now. And uh, he also defines the word as except for the fact, but means except for the fact, now means at the present time. So I got my concordance down and I find several places where that little uh, uh, conjunction is used. So I would like to notice just a few of those and uh, I believe it will be something that you're interested in. In Hebrews, the ninth chapter and verse beginning with verse 24, we know that the book of Hebrews is extolling the virtues of Christ's administration, if you will, of, as opposed to that of Moses. And he said in verse 24, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, 
but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Notice, if you will, that contrast. He would often have suffered since the foundation of the world if he had to do as the high priest of the Old Testament. But now, but now, once in the end of the world or the end of the age, the Jewish or the Mosaic age, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's a wonderful thought there because the sacrifices of the Old Testament prefigured and foreshadowed the sacrifice of Christ. Did you know that way back yonder in the Garden of Eden, when man first was put upon this earth and was given the beautiful paradise in which to live, that was a test for Adam, I presume. Adam was uh, in, surrounded by everything that the heart of man could possibly desire. The Bible said that there were fruit trees there. It must have been a beautiful place. Uh, because uh, every day probably the temperature was just exactly right. The climate must have been wonderful. Uh, it was also full of things that were good to eat. And uh, there was simply no reason for anybody to be unhappy or dissatisfied in the Garden of Eden. However, God had only two prohibitions. One of them was a positive uh, command and the other was a negative command. God said that he was to keep the garden, to till it and to keep it. And the other was that he was not to eat of the fruit of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat. There in the midst of the garden was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God said, Don't eat of it, because in the day that you eat thereof, you will die. And there's no evidence that Adam failed in that first command to dress and to keep the garden, but uh, Eve was given to him, as we well know, and Eve being, as the Bible says, the weaker uh, vessel, Satan came through Mother Eve, and he appealed to her vanity and to all of the three avenues by which man is tempted. He said, look at this fruit. Why, it's beautiful to look at. Besides that, it tastes good, and it'll make you wise. She he tried to suggest that maybe God had unduly restricted them. Has God said that you're not to eat of any of the trees of the garden? She said, no, God said that we could eat of all of the trees of the garden, but of that tree we're not to eat it or touch it lest you die. So she understood God's command very well. And he said, you won't die. Why, you'll, uh, you'll be as God yourself. You'll know good from evil. And he persuaded her that that was the thing to do. And of course she ate of it. And the Bible says that she gave it to her husband and he did eat. I've often wondered why Adam with full knowledge uh, entered into that sin, that digression from God's commandment. But as one of our older preachers pointed out some years ago, 
I think it was true that he loved her so much that he intended to share her fate, whatever that was. And so he ate of it. And now we see the guilty pair hiding out in the, in the bushes somewhere from God. They'd made some little old skimpy fig leaf garments with which to clothe themselves. They were inadequate, and so the voice of God sought them out. Adam, where art thou? God, of course, knew right exactly where Adam was, what bush he was hiding behind, and uh, he wanted Adam to see where he was. And so Adam says, well, we were afraid because we were naked, and so we hid ourselves. God said, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, thou shalt not eat? Adam had to confess that he had. And so the Bible tells us that God made them coats of skin. And immediately we wonder, where did he get that skin? Well, you know that occasioned the death of an animal, didn't it? A victim, an innocent victim, in order to cover Adam and Eve. Because their covering that they had made was inadequate. And so the Bible says that he made them coats of skin. And thus probably shed the blood of the first sacrificial victim upon the face of the earth. Incidentally, that word atonement, he made an atonement for their sin. That word atonement means a covering. God covered them with that sacrifice. And thus, away back yonder in the Garden of Eden, as it were, we see the picture of Christ's sacrifice. Now, in Genesis 3.15, Bible scholars believe this is an allusion to Christ when he said to the serpent that he would bruise the uh, seed of the woman, the heel of the seed of the woman, and, and uh, that he would crush his head. The seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. Uh, that's the only place where exclusively a seed of a woman is mentioned. Usually, you know, the man has that role, but in this case, Christ was to be born through a virgin. And uh, there's the prediction way back yonder in the Garden of Eden. How beautiful a picture that is, that Christ was prefigured and foreshadowed back then. Some think that uh, when God said, uh, when Eve, uh, when God promised that to Eve and to Adam, and you remember Eve brought forth her firstborn son. She said, you remember what she said? She said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. Some seem to think that maybe she thought that was the Savior. But of course it wasn't. Man had to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. And so ages, as the ages swept past, we see other sacrifices which prefigured and foreshadowed the coming of the Christ. We see on the night that the children of Israel left Egypt. We see a picture there. They had uh, developed into a mighty nation. God appointed Moses to lead them out. And Moses had showed Pharaoh all of these wonderful signs, plagues that were designed to melt his old hard heart and let the children of Israel go. And he had resisted every one of them. He would agree to it and then he would, he would change his mind. God said, I'm going to give you one more, and he will let you go. God told Moses, he said, you, this is what you tell the Israelites. In every house, you take a lamb. You take one that is without spot and blemish, and you kill that lamb. 
and you take its blood and you put it in a basin and then you take hyssop and you dip that hyssop in that blood and you strike it on the lintels and doorposts of every home. Way back there in old Egypt, we see the sign of the cross. And God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's where that term Passover came from. And so that night, the children of Israel, with feet shod and with staff in hand and with everything that they intended to take, were ready. And at midnight, a cry went up all over Egypt where the blood had not been applied. And the children of Israel made their exodus. Yes, away back there in old Egypt, we see in that Passover lamb the picture of the Christ. The blood separated from the body indicated, of course, the picture of death. And that foreshadowed that Christ who was to come. Again, the Day of Atonement rolled around among the Jewish nation. And on this day, once a year, the high priest took his victim, a bullet, and uh, he uh, put his right hand upon that victim's head, and he put that knife between his teeth. And then he took his left hand and he took that knife and he cut that innocent victim's throat and shed its blood. And that, the Bible says, he took that blood and he made an atonement, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Hebrews says in Hebrews 10 and verse 1, however, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance of sins uh, made of uh, sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. All of those sacrifices, there was a remembrance again made, the scripture says, every year. And finally, when Christ died, you see, he took away the sins of man once for all. The sacrifice on Calvary was once for all. Incidentally, once for all is a translation of the Greek word hapax. So that's the one that's used for once in this passage in Hebrews. And this word is of immense significance and it's used several times in key statements in the New Testament. For example, Christ has been manifested in human form once for all, we're told in Hebrews 9 and 26. He suffered man's sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, we're told in 1 Peter 3:18. Once, once for all. Christ died once for all. Hebrews 9 and 28. He offered his blood in heaven once for all. Hebrews 9 and verses 12 and 26. The faith, that recognized body of truth that was given to us. The faith was given, delivered to the saints once for all according to Jude 3. It's appointed unto man once to die. Once for all. Hebrews 9 and verse 27. Once for all, God will shake the earth and the heavens, that is, to remove them, according to Hebrews 12 and verse 27. The glory of Christ's sacrifice, as set forth here, consists of the complete, the final, the irrevocable nature of his offering. 
It was not a, something to be repeated. It was once for all. Those offerings and sacrifices under Judaism were repeated year after year after year. But Christ's sacrifice was once for all. And this passage eliminates any idea that the church should have something to offer or sacrifice in such a thing as the mass, for example. Because the one and only efficacious sacrifice has been offered in heaven where alone it could do any good and by the only one capable of doing it, and that's, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in some quarters there is teaching that in the Mass, Christ is re-sacrificed. That's the meaning of that word, the Mass. But you know, under Christ's administration, His sacrifice was once for all. But this passage also reveals the true purpose of Jesus coming into the world. It was not to begin an earthly kingdom. It was not to erect an earthly throne. It was not to restore a literal kingdom to Israel. It was to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And uh, those who view the crucifixion of Christ as something other than God's uh, plan and envision from the beginning have failed to grasp the most fundamental teaching of all the scriptures. You see, God's offering of himself in the person of his son upon the cross, that's the sin qua non of all human forgiveness and salvation. And when the writer of the Hebrew letter said there in Hebrews 9, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, it brought to mind that statement of Isaiah in Isaiah 53 and verses 4 through 6. God indeed had laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. We did esteem him stricken of God and afflicted. The little Jewish hierarchy had their little day with him. They humiliated him. They crowned him with every conceivable insult. They inflicted upon Christ the most heinous punishment that could be known to the mind of man. He was despised and rejected of men. And thus he died for the sins of many. But after his death, there quickly appeared the judgment of God upon Christ. He arose from the dead. The supreme court of the universe reversed the adverse de decision of the Sanhedrin and the Roman procurator. And Christ was elevated to the right hand of the majesty on high. Yes, but now we see the sacrifice of Christ. But there's another but now, and that's here in Romans 6 and verse 20, where the apostle said, For when you were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness, and the end everlasting life for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord folks this is a tremendous thought right here he said one time you had uh, you had your life in sin but now now being made free from sin what happened in the lives of the Roman Christians that caused them to cease to be servants of sin 
and become servants of righteousness? That's a question I want to explore for just a moment. In the sixth chapter of Romans, in verse 16, Paul said, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. God be thanked that you were the servants of sin. But now, he says, you're become the servants of righteousness. What happened that caused people to cease to be servants of sin and become the servants of righteousness? All right, let's notice his words again. He said, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. Now there was something that happened in the lives of the Romans that caused them to cease to be servants of sin and become servants of righteousness. What was it? Why, he said, God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. What was that form of doctrine? Form is a likeness of anything, isn't it? You know what it is when you're building something like a sidewalk. You, you lay a form out. You fill it up with liquid uh, concrete, and when it dries, it has that form, you see. Or maybe, uh, maybe you want to uh, make something else. Maybe somebody wants to form something like a statue, and it bears the likeness of whatever it is that you're making. I remember reading one of the uh, old uh, gospel preachers, E.M. Borden, who told that during, <laughs> when he was a boy, he said that it was evidently after the Civil War, and that uh, he had found some old bullet mold somewhere. And he said there was also a quantity of lead, and they would have fun melting that lead, getting it hot, melting it, and pouring it into the bullet molds and making bullets. And he said then when they got the bullets made, they'd melt those down and recast them again. Fun was in the making of the bullets, you know. Finally, they used up all of their lead, and so they cast about to find something else to use and uh, got into his mother's safe and found some biscuits. And he took the biscuit dough and poked it into the bullet molds, and he said they came out in the form of bullets. They were biscuit bullets, sort of uh, flat, and I mean sort of uh, flabby and uh, pale, but he said they were bullets. They were shaped like bullets. Well, you know, that's what a mold does. That's what a form does. It, it casts it into the likeness of whatever the, the form is. Now, there's a form of doctrine that they obeyed that caused them to, be, uh, to become servants of righteousness, to cease to be servants of sin and become servants of righteousness. What do you suppose that was? Well, let's look at what we're commanded to do to become Christians. We're commanded to believe, aren't we? Do you see and believe anything that looks like a form of the doctrine? Somebody said, well, what's the doctrine? Well, Paul explained that in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3. He said, I delivered unto you that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. 
Now that's the likeness. Now, Paul said there that you obey the form of that doctrine which was delivered. Paul said, this is what I delivered right here. You see anything in belief that looks like this? I submit you don't. But that's a command. We have to believe, don't we? And then we're commanded to repent. Do you see anything in repentance that looks like this over here, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? I'm frank to say I don't. Well, what we're commanded to confess Christ with our mouth, Matthew 10 and 32. Do you see anything here that looks like this over here? Not really. No. But what about baptism? you see anything in baptism? That's another command. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Do you see anything in baptism that looks like this? Let's look at Romans 6 and verse 1, or verse 4 it is, where he says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so ye also should walk in newness of life. For if you've been planned together in the likeness of his death, you shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Now notice again. He said, God be thanked. You were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, being then made free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. I think it's obvious and evident what it is that makes us free from sin and causes us to become children of God or servants of righteousness. What Paul did not say is significant. He didn't say Thank God you prayed through, or thank God you only believed. He said, thank God ye have obeyed. Obeyed what? That form of doctrine which was delivered you. Now, when were they made free from sin? When they believed? No. When they prayed through? Doesn't say that. When the Holy Spirit fell on them? No. According to Romans 6, 17 and 18, it was when they obeyed that form of doctrine. But I want to notice another now, and that's the now of position. Now we've noticed the now of Christ's sacrifice, the now of forgiveness. Now we're in a blessed position. Out of Christ's death on the cross and our obedience to the gospel grows another precious word. Here in Ephesians 2.13 he said, but now in Christ Jesus, Ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Again in Ephesians 5 and 8. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Again, Peter puts it another way. Peter said in 1 Peter 2 and 25. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Seems like the Old Testament was in Paul's mind constantly. Uh, the background verse in this passage seems to be Isaiah 57 and 19 that says, I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord. I will heal him. But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God. To the wicked. Those words far off in both the Old Testament and the New Testament are a reference to the Gentiles. That's what he's talking about. 
when he says them that are far off. That's us, folks. Did you know that uh, back in ancient times, uh, anything that was far off was held to be detestable, even among the pagans? The English word profane derives from a Latin word, profano, uh, which literally means far off, away from the temple. In other words, the utter depravity of the whole pre-Christian Gentile civilization is expressed by these words afar off. They were afar off from the temple, from covenant relationship with God, don't you see? But the blood of Christ cleanses from sin and makes it possible for the profane, the far off, to enter the temple of God. Ephesians 2.14, he says, He is our peace who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the commandments contained in ordinances. Again in Ephesians, uh, these passages here make a co blessed comparison of what we were with what we are. He said, we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were walking according to the prince of the power of the air. We were having our conversation in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But now, on account of the other now, that is his death on the cross and our obedience to the gospel, we are in Christ. We're quickened. We're sitting in the heavenly places. We're no longer far off, but we're made nigh by the blood of Christ. And we're returned to the shepherd and bishop of our souls. It's that blessed position. And it's not after we die. It's now. But now, he says. But I want to consider another now. And that's the now of practice. You know, our blessed position in Christ, forgiven, is no excuse for folded hands and pious laziness any more than it is the license to live as we please. What we were and what we are impels us to consider soberly what we should be. What we should be. Peter said in 1 Peter 2 and 9, you're a chosen people, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Yes, we're all of that. But this is no place to stop reading. Let's go on. He said that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3 and 8. Listen now. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communications out of your mouth, and then follows a list of practical duties and responsibilities. Everyday matters like lying, domestic duties, business duties. You see, don't we see that what we should be, and we should be in practice, now what we are in profession. We've professed something now that we've become Christians, and we're to be in practice what we profess. Those whose practice doesn't fit their profession bring reproach upon the church. They tell the world that Christ and the church have done nothing for them. And if you claim membership in the Lord's church, 
and you're living in sin, let me tell you that you're hurting the church. Because you see the person who's out here, he, he just wants an excuse for not being a Christian. He wants to justify himself. And so he measures himself by the church member who's not living a good life. And he says, well, I'm as good as he is, so I guess I'm all right. You see, because we're the only gospel that this old sinful world is going to read. They're not going to read the Bible. They don't look for Christ in the Bible. They don't look for Christ in nature. But you know where they do look for Christ? If you claim to be a Christian, they look for Christ in you. If they see sin there instead of Christ, the church is hurt. Here's a man over here somewhere who boasts that he's a church member, but in business he puts over a shady deal. At the cocktail party, he drinks like everyone else. Out on the golf course, he uses profanity, bets on the game. He's not a good example. His life hurts the cause of Christ. Somebody said that you can take a, a cork and put it in a bottle, toss it into the ocean, and not a drop of water will get into it. And you know, in the same way, if a man has sin in his life, he can attend worship every Sunday, but no blessing can come to him because he has that sin in his life. Unless our practice fits our profession, we bring reproach upon the cause of Christ. Now I'm going to say something that may sound harsh, but I really have been convinced for a number of years that there's a lot of people on the face of this earth that are just going to hell with a lot of trouble because they are not committed to Christ and to His cause. Oh, it's true, they attend worship at times, but they're not faithful Christians. And what does it mean to be faithful? You know, the Bible says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. What does it mean to be a faithful Christian? Well, let's see. If I have a paper boy at home that's supposed to deliver the paper every day, and he just delivers it one day a week, would you call that a faithful paper boy? I don't think so. Suppose I had a car, and one day a week that car would start. Would that be a faithful, dependable car? Not really. I've convinced sometimes some are simply too slothful, too lazy to be faithful. Said that an ox and a mule one time worked together. One day the ox said he'd had enough and he wasn't going to work. So he stayed in the barn. That night he said to the mule, did the boss say anything about my not working today? And the mule said, no, he didn't say anything about you not working. But he had a long talk with the butcher on the way home. Well, you know, God can't use lazy people. You check the Bible, folks, and you'll see that the ones that God has used mightily have been those who are busy people, who are already working. Proverbs 19 and 24 says, A slothful man hideth his hand in his bosom and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. What a picture of a man who's even too lazy 
to feed himself. I'd heard this old story ever since I was a child at home about some old worthless boy in the community who was just so lazy that he wouldn't provide for his family, too lazy to do anything. Finally, some neighbors made it up. They were just going to take him to the cemetery and bury him. Somebody said, well, don't do that. I'll give him a bushel of corn. And said he raised his head up from off of the wagon, looked over and says, is it shelled? And they said, well, no, you'd have to shell it. He said, drive on, boys. Well, you know, that's a picture of a lazy person. And some people are too lazy to get up on Sunday morning, as you have today, and attend worship. Too lazy to attend midweek services. Too lazy to attend gospel meetings. Too lazy to do anything for God and others. And yet, the only ones that are going to be saved, according to Jesus, are those who are good and faithful servants. Matthew 25 and 23, his Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. What about us? Are we faithful Christians? But now I want to notice one, and then I'll be through this morning. The now of either Calvary or condemnation. Let's remember the awful consequence of rejecting the now of the cross and the now of gospel obedience. And that produces the now of blessed position and practice. Abraham is speaking to the rich man in the 16th chapter of Luke. And I know I've heard sermons on that one phrase of that fearfully solemn passage. Son, remember. But there are two other words of terrible significance. In Luke 16 and 25, he said... But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and alas, likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. You see, one time he'd had it going his way. One time when he was living in God's world, he drank God's water, he breathed God's air, he enjoyed God's sunshine. He ate God's food. But he served the devil. And now the situation is reversed. Now he says, you're tormented. Lazarus, all he had was evil thing. Now he's comforted. What a contrast. The rich fool thought he had much goods laid up for many years. But God said, thou fool... This night shall thy soul be required of thee. He and God were running on different timetables. So there comes one day that final retribution. The tables were turned. We may have had our way in other times, but now it's sin's awful penalty. And the only way out is through his provision. It's either the now of Calvary or the now of condemnation. For the condemnation is now, even though hell comes later. You remember what Jesus said in John 3, 18? Jesus said, He that believeth on me is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You don't have to die to be lost. The person who's lost is lost all the time. 
whether he's at home or whether he's away, whether it's at night or in daytime, doesn't matter. He's lost all the time. And the only thing that stands between him and that awful abyss that we read about in the Bible is the pulsations of his heart. When that stops, the now of condemnation takes hold. However, if the condemnation is now, so is the deliverance. Now, the Bible said, is the day of salvation. Now, if we'll believe and obey, as the scripture says, the work is done. Be saved, oh, tonight, as the old gospel song says. Thank God for the, the fact that we can obey now and receive that promise of our Lord. I don't know how you stand with God today. I don't know what your relationship with the Lord is, but I know that every person here today knows exactly what that is. You know whether or not you've ever obeyed the gospel that will make you a New Testament Christian. You know whether you've ever believing, repented of your sins, confessed Christ, been buried of the Lord in baptism for the remission of sins. But if you haven't done those things, that's the most urgent business at hand for you. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.